2: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest Edwina Bring Me the Anatomy Book Edition. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2017. On today's show, the new film from Sofia Coppola is called The Beguiled. We discuss it. And the controversy surrounding its depiction, or really lack of depiction, of slavery. And then Roger Stone has been the dark artist of dirty tricks in American politics Uh, since the Nixon era. A new documentary argues that he, more than anyone, is the Svengali behind our current president. Get Me, Roger Stone is now streaming on Netflix. And finally, the iPhone turns 10 years old. Joining me today is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Uh, And uh, Slate's film critic, of course, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
1: Hey there, Steven.
2: Should we dive in? The Beguiled is the latest film from director Sofia Coppola, best known, I would say, for Lost in Translation, but also director of The Bling Ring and Virgin Suicides and many other esteemed films. The new one tells the story of a boarding school for girls in the Confederate South. It's the middle of the war and they take in a wounded Union soldier played by Colin Farrell. The school is forced by uh, wartime exigencies into self-sufficiency. The women are genteel, but beleaguered and quite isolated. They're extracting a meager existence from the land. And each one of them projects her own longing onto Corporal John McBurney as he plays to each of their hidden desires. And as you can guess, trouble ensues. Let's listen to a clip. Is your leg paining you? Some.
1: <laughs> well, I hear numbness would be more grave. Indeed. There's some brandy if you wish.
2: Oh, no, that would be a pleasure.
3: It's not being offered for your pleasure, only for your comfort.
2: Yes, ma'am.
1: I must remind you, Corporal McBunny, you are not a guest here. You are
2: a most unwelcome visitor, and we do not propose to entertain you. Well, I wouldn't expect it, ma'am. Although you'll find I'm easily amused. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. it's never a good sign, uh, uh, Julia, when the clip we play doesn't pass the laugh test. But anyway, Dana is the film critic. I'm going to start with Dana. Well, it depends
1: on whether you think the movie is a comedy or not. So we'll get to that. Yeah, that makes the movie sound sort of like softcore porn, which would have been so much more (laughs) enjoyable than the movie I actually
2: watched. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, before we get there, let me just say that you heard the voices of uh, Colin Farrell, but also Nicole Kidman, who plays the headmistress of the school. Uh, Kirsten Dunst plays uh, Edwina. Um, who uh, falls, I think, almost most deeply in love with um, uh, with Corporal McBurney. Um, Dana, you didn't like this movie, huh?
1: Well, I mean, I guess didn't like is a little bit strong. This is one of those movies that completely wraps you up, and it's th- the beauty of its images and kind of the propulsiveness of its story. It's short. It goes by quickly. It tells its story effectively. It's sort of a movie that has everything in place um, to to keep you beguiled for that space of two hours of running time. But I felt really viscerally watching the movie, the critique that has kind of created the backlash of, about it later, which is that this hothouse atmosphere that she sets up, which is kind of Sophia Coppola's specialty, is setting up hothouse atmospheres and uh, and trapping characters within them and seeing what happens. I mean, this is a time-honored dramatic technique, and there's nothing wrong with creating hothouse atmospheres, but it really seems to me like her that's that's kind of the limit of her game. And uh, in a way, she's at the top of her game here because the story is beautifully told and the twists are unexpected and, you know, the lighting is filtering goldenly through the laced drapes and everybody gives a great performance. But this movie felt so historically thin to me. And so, I mean, we'll get to the, the slavery question later. And that was a major part of the novel this is based on and also of the earlier version of this movie with Clint Eastwood from the early 70s, which she completely leaves out. But that in a way is just a symptom to me of the of the ahistoricity and kind of thinness, dramatic thinness of this movie. Where I had a very clear sense at the end of, is that all there is? And I don't know if you guys took that away at all.
2: Yeah. Um, Julia, Dana mentioned something that I uh, omitted from my um, introduction, something quite important, that this is a remake of a 1971 Clint Eastwood film directed by Don Siegel, who um, those are the two principal talents behind Dirty Harry. So you can only imagine that that was told from a very different perspective. I mean, what did you think about this retelling?
0: Uh, Well, I'll come back to the question I raised at the beginning, which is uh, if you think this is a very ponderous, slow, serious Mu- largely musicless, apart from the uh, diegetic music of the girl's own singing and playing, which is really interesting because I think the one critique of Sofia Coppola is like, she just does mu- music videos. It's glamorous women in dresses with like crazy, beautiful, uh, non-contemporaneous songs blasting behind. Like it's very still, the movie. It's very cloistered in a way that struck me as novel. Um, if you take all that as an as evidence of sobriety, it seems incredibly self-serious and thin at the same time. Um, but if you read the movie as sort of a wicked, uh, black comedic answer to the macho-ness and the sort of women are evilness of the first film, uh, I think it might be more successful. I came out slightly puzzled by how it all added up, but I, uh, it certainly made me laugh a lot, and I'm not sure that wasn't the point
1: no there's there's plenty of laughs that she's shooting for in there and it's and it's the laughter of i mean of farce sort of right of of this kind of sex comedy of a handsome man shut up in a house with all of these repressed ladies and sort of everybody competing for his attention and him playing them all it is it is in some ways kind of a dark sex comedy
2: oh my i was i have to admit i was suffering from Uh, genre confusion, even though I was beguiled, um, as I was supposed to be by the, certainly by the look of the movie and some of the performances, I mean, you have to, I guess you make a decision whether to go with a serious, you know, kind of drippingly, you know, exaggerated, uh, Southern accent when you, um, play, play a movie like this. Um, but Nicole Kidman in that clip, as you can hear is kind of doing the non-accent accent. um, it sounds almost vaguely British to me at certain moments. I mean, I found the movie distractingly weird in a way. Um, you know, its historical thinness, I think, is absolutely correct, Dana. Like, you don't, you don't feel as though you're actually embedded in this world of, of you know, a kind of you know, mayhem and the, and it's really the waning days of the confederacy right like it's 1864
1: whole... right it's the last year of the civil yeah. war yeah,
2: exactly you're on the verge of an entire antebellum world being completely wiped out like the social premises by which especially white women in the south have existed for 100 years are about to be completely Eradicated, and that isn't made very present in the film. It's made pointedly absent, um, as we'll get to with the total absence of black people or slaves, uh, or mention of them. There's one passing mention of them, but that aside, I mean, the thing that the thing that confused me was was really a, jo- a genre confusion. So you've got what probably was like kind of along with Straw Dogs and various other sort of early '70s mo- m- movies that were sort of violent and retributive and And, uh, you know, to to paint it as charitably as possible, kind of examining machismo and male identity in relation to violence, you know, it, it originates in a movie that is told from the point of view of Clint Eastwood. So it's a kind of castration anxiety film in the first one. And it's being troubled in interesting and feminist ways that I appreciate while not also seeing how they played into what had to be the. Ultimate appeal of the movie as a genre piece, right? Which is, you know, I I wasn't sure whether I was watching a sex farce, uh, whether I was watching a suspense thriller, uh, whether I was watching a historical melodrama. I mean, it has all of these elements, and I didn't feel as though the confusion of my responses to it were aesthetically rich and fruitful. Like, I kind of wanted the suspenseful moments to be more pointed and suspenseful, and the farcical moments to be more obviously comical. Is this a failure of, of my own uh, you know, capacities for subtlety, Julia, or, or am I missing something?
0: Uh, I'm not going to uh, attempt to conclude about your capacities for subtlety, Steve, but I guess one, <laughs> one thing that puzzles me, and I think it would be interesting to look more largely at our response to Sofia Coppola's work, because I'm not sure we've really discussed her. Maybe we must have at some point in ten, nearly 10 years of doing the show, but I, I can't remember a discussion about it. One thing that always strikes me, I, I have an impulse to defend the historicity of pieces like Marie Antoinette and this movie, which does not seem fundamentally that interested in uh, the issues that we think of as central to the Civil War and that we're driving the Civil War, right? Like one of the things that I liked about Madman's approach to history is that it did not assume that every privileged person who was not particularly touched by civil rights was like wrapped in front of the TV every night being like, how are the Freedom Riders doing today? They just like had to go to work and they were worried about picking out a tie and they were having an affair and they like, you know, the, the way in which politics reaches into the lives, particularly of people who don't have to concern themselves with it because of their privilege is more subtle than is often portrayed in historical films. So the notion of being interested in how out of it and clueless, a bunch of white women in this sort of weirdly creepy mansion where you can hear the cannons nearby, and yet they seem utterly uh, kind of unconcerned by the actual core issues being fought for, doesn't to me seem necessarily a sign that a movie is beneath consideration or respect. Like there, there are ways to do that that are bad. There are ways to do that that are smarter. I'm not quite sure where I land on how Sofia Coppola has done it here, but... I, I don't think that's an out-of-bounds approach to historical fiction. On the one hand, there's a part of me that can make an intellectual defense for exploring the cloisteredness of women's lives in this way, and yet I find that the way that she portrays women is so... She just makes them yeah. seem dumb.
2: Yeah, no, that that's a real problem. You've got the reproving hypocrite headmistress. You've got um, the kind of you know maidenly could be a, you know, uh, virgin her whole life, Edwina, who I think in some ways ends up the heroine of the tragic heroine of the movie. Um, and then the, the, you know, the young kind of, you know, potty who just wants to seduce him. It's not, well, not a lot to pick from there.
0: I'm curious Dana, to hear your your uh, larger relationship to Sofia Coppola's work.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when, when I see a Sofia Coppola movie now, I feel like as a critic, I have to, do extra work to come to it, not with some sort of animus from her previous movies, because to me, I just see this pattern repeating itself over and over and over again. I just don't, I don't see her as growing as a filmmaker at all. She has incredible taste. She's amazing at picking all of her technical, technical contributors so that her camera work will be great. And her costumes will be beautifully thought through as they are in this movie. And to the extent there's kind of historicity and richness in this movie, it's in the material details of the house and the costumes. Um, but I just, I feel over and over again, and when you think about The Virgin Suicides, it's true, or Somewhere, her last movie with Elle Fanning that was sort of about um, a Hollywood star trapped in the Marmont Hotel. Everybody is living these lives of kind of privilege and enemy and, and drifting kind of pointlessness. And she's amazing at capturing that mood. The Bling Ring also is, is essentially all about capturing that mood. But um But it just doesn't really lead anywhere outside itself, which is one thing when you're talking about a movie star trapped in the Hotel Marmont watching strippers, which is the scene that somewhere opens on. But it's something else when you decide, you know what, I'm going to make a movie set in 1864 that's a remake of this earlier movie and book and that has this whole kind of history. But I'm just going to excise all of that and turn it into another Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translations, Somewhere-style fishbowl of of beautiful, rich people drifting in and out of light beams. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't mean to reduce this movie and say that it doesn't have <laughs> anything else going on than that, but that focus on mood alone is something that has always bugged me about her and that I feel like she gets a very free ride on. She won Best Director at Cannes for this. She's the f- only second, to the second woman ever to have won that award at Cannes. And in a way, I feel like it's deserved. I mean, I'm not a person to cavil about awards and who deserved it and who should have gotten it It's great that a woman got that award. She's a very gifted and talented creator in some ways. And so I don't begrudge her having been recognized in that way. But this movie doesn't feel important to me. It feels beautifully accomplished in its small mode, but it doesn't feel like it's reaching for anything new for her or for us. I just didn't feel like it was it was breaking any new ground as a historical drama or as As anything,
2: Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. So let's get to the the controversy quickly, and then we can move on. But essentially, the absence of slaves is addressed in a subordinate clause. uh, Essentially, the young character in the first scene of the movie um, says the slaves left, and that's it. Um, And it's worth
1: noting in that context, Steve, that there's a a slave who's a character, an important character in the uh, in the Clint Eastwood version. And then in the novel, there is not only that character, but that also Edwina, the teacher character played by Kirsten Dunst in this movie, is a, is a mixed race woman in the book. And so there's this whole subplot about her hiding her mixed race status from the rest of the family. So in other words, race figures into the book in significant ways and into the first movie in slightly less significant ways and has been completely chopped out of this version. And I think that you can't dictate to someone what movie they should have made rather than the movie they did make. But I think it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask Sofia Coppola in interviews and to ask ourselves watching this movie, well, why? Why the slaves left in three words? What What does this movie get out of whitewashing itself to that extent?
2: Julia, I have to throw, I have to throw it back on you, Julia. You, you're the one arguing for the position that historicity, uh, d- density of historicity, uh, or verisimilitude, or whatever, is um, is unnecessary to a movie if it works on other levels. Even in this instance, let's say this had been a flawless genre piece, you know, or or a brilliant existential meditation, but still, it decided to excise race from the history of the American Civil War. You're telling me that that's not an issue? That's not a serious uh, point against this film?
0: You are definitely misrepresenting my view in several <laughs> ways. <laughs> um. Well, first of all, people have asked Sofia Coppola this question, and she said essentially um, that she wasn't confident she could do justice to that story, that the issues there were bigger, more complicated than the ones she hoped to address in this film, and that she wasn't sure she was the person to tell that story. So, you know, uh, there was a piece on The Daily Beast, by Byra Madison pointing out that she's a bit damned if she does, damned if she doesn't, like if she was the white female director really trying to deeply interrogate issues of race and corsets in this uh, film, she might have come in for criticism the other way. I'm not arguing for a historicity. I'm puzzling through the fact that I think in some ways um, a lot of privileged people are out to lunch now and were then, and that an accurate and historical representation of Uh, what a bunch of white women might have been doing in the waning days of the Civil War. They might have not been particularly concerned with slavery at all. They might have Mm. been more concerned with their needlework. Mm. However, I do think the choice to take material that that had the stories of slaves embedded in it and excise them seems... kind of icky. Well,
1: and for that absence not to be part of Mm -hmm. the movie. When when that little girl at the very beginning of the movie says the slaves left as she's walking the wounded Union soldier back to the house, I thought, okay, so that's going to become something. You know, their absence will be some sort of presence in the movie, even if it's just in terms of understanding these women's relationship to domestic chores that we must presume for many years as their privileged young ladies in a boarding school had been performed for them by slaves, right? I mean, so even that kind of... Oh, sort of paved over inequity, you know, where that absence was not really present in the movie. Right. There's one moment later
0: on where Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman's characters talk about the end of the war and what it means where there's a bit of a, like, this way of life is dying type moment. Right. And you're right. That's it. That's the only thing. And slaves don't- come into that. And Well,
1: and uh, even this 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 way of life is dying. I mean, I'm sorry, but there's there's a lot of plantation nostalgia sort of in this movie. It was filmed at, at this historic mm. location in Louisiana, which is you might recognize from Beyoncé's Lemonade video, the place where the women are hanging out on the porch of this plantation mansion. It's the same house, you know, it's this sort of historic representation of white supremacy and, you know, plantation life. And for them to kind of inhabit it unproblematically as light filters through Spanish moss. I just think there's there's a lot of exoticization of the South in this movie. And Coppola herself mm-hmm. has said, I'm sort of drawn to the gothic, romantic image of, of the South. Well, and that's something that we get through movies, right? And through Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind. And there's a history to that, is all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I, I think the tone shifts in, in all the ways
0: that you describe, Steve, are in here in a way that makes it impossible to actually defend this movie in the way that I'm proposing one could defend a movie that makes some of the choices that Sofia Coppola makes here like this movie Mm -hmm. is not entirely successful in those
2: terms no I'm just saying like they are they seem
0: like cloistered ninnies Mm -hmm. they aren't like the heroes of the film exactly one one critic we read called them dollops of meringue in their dresses which was such a great description Uh, you know their softest softest pastels like the movie's too in love with them and critical of them at the same time to quite come off
2: my problem with the beguiled is that it doesn't function enough as an allegory and you never want anything to be reductive to its meaning in any sort of simplistic way and yet this one is so gauzy and impressionistic even though it has all the elements of what appear to be an allegory like you know a northerner from the world of violent conflict drops into this you know a uh, hothouse and um, sexual desire is unleashed and th- the idea that this is meaningful Uh, how exactly is never fully explored. It's only
0: meaningful to the level of Colin Farrell's eyelashes. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no they don't mean anything other than that Colin
1: Farrell is a manly man stud.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The meaning in this movie extends no further than, than the end of Colin Farrell's eyelashes.
1: I mean, I would only just add for people writing into us that Sofia Coppola has a very sizable cult. And, I, and and it's a cult full of people who love movies and care about movies. And some of my favorite critics are just utter stands for Sofia Coppola. So I would be interested to hear somebody persuade us and give us the opposite argument and say this is an important film and you guys don't mm-hmm. get why. Yeah, I'd love to read that. Yeah, and I, I will say the one
0: thing about her... Uh, I had that feeling after her movies where you walk out into the world and the world is a movie. Like there's certain filmmakers who
2: <laughs>
0: t- train your eye or change your eye. And suddenly like the framing of the steps of the Angelica escalators in the door of the theater as I was walking out felt
1: fraught with import. Right. <laughs> when the Angelica feels beautiful, the movie really did something to you. Yeah, but yeah, she's a mood creator. She's an able, able mood creator for sure.
2: All right. I, we've achieved something approaching consensus, which is a sure indicator that we're wrong. So come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us what you thought of this movie if you've seen it. Um, it's omissions, sins of omissions and uh, commission and uh, it's uh, many aesthetic virtues. Uh, all right. Moving on. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. All right. Well, now is the moment in the podcast where we talk uh, talk some business. What do we have, uh, Julia? Uh,
0: well, the first thing I want to say is that if you enjoyed that somewhat protracted discussion of The Beguiled, uh, even half as much as we enjoyed conducting it, you should also check out Represent, which is Ayesha Harris's wonderful podcast about the nature of representation in the culture today. She interviews all kinds of creators of culture and is interested in how things get made and, in particular, how things by people who are not straight white men get made and and uh, how the choices they make shape the way we perceive the world. And she actually had the writer Corey Atad on to discuss some of the issues of representation in the book that we touched on on an episode last week. So go check that out. It's Represent with Aisha Harris, Slate writer, longtime friend of the podcast, uh, and you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. Second up, uh, in Slate Plus today, we are going to be answering some listener questions. So when we discussed S-Town... Uh, A few weeks, months back, Steve made some offhand, some might even say high-handed comments about uh, the aesthetic of This American Life and his distaste for it. And many listeners have written in to say, what? How could you not like This American Life? So we're going to talk a little bit about the aesthetic of This American Life, where it stems from, how it's evolved, what we think of it in Slate Plus. If you're not yet a member of Slate Plus, you can hear segments like this and also get an ad-free version of the Slate podcast feed by joining. And Slate Plus is now easier to join than ever. You can join free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com app. That's the easiest way to get the dedicated ad-free podcast feed with bonus segments. So check it out. Finally, one more shout out. Chris Melanfi's new podcast, Hit Parade, his monthly show about excellent pop songs of yesteryear, or at least notorious or interesting ones, uh, has a new episode that came out on our feed last week. It is about Elton John and George Michael and the travails of um, male pop stardom, if you are gay and haven't told people yet and then what happens after you do. Um, It's great. Also, Chris Melanfee will be on our show next week because next week is summer strut. Get excited. Get strutty. Um, So a lot of Melanfi come into your earbuds, uh, which is always a good thing. All right. Finally, we have a request to make to our listeners, and we're going to have Dana make that request.
1: Yes. uh, If you're a person who loves this show and has strong feelings about the Slate Culture fest, and I know there are some of you out there because when we went to Australia, for example, there were many, many people who came up and told us kindly how important the podcast has been to them and how much they love to listen every week. If you are one of those people, it has been a while since we asked you this, but please go to iTunes and leave us a review there. It really, really helps new people to discover the show. It helps us to move further up in the list so that our podcast appears for people who are exploring podcasts for the first time. And it's really, aside from subscribing to Slate Plus, one of the most material ways that you can help this show to prosper. So if you love us, please go and tell people so on iTunes. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we don't ask you this every week because we figure you might get um, tired of us asking you, but we're hoping to do a little iTunes review flurry. iTunes is an ecosystem that uh, wonderfully surfaces exciting new shows, and there's lots of exciting new shows out there to listen to. Um, But it also means that if you are a decade-long old stalwart, uh, it can be useful for people to chime in and say what they like about what we do. So iTunes flurry please go leave a review. Thank you. All right, Steve,
2: onward. Get me Roger Stone is the new and I think a quite gripping documentary on Netflix about the political operative Roger Stone. Roger Stone has been around Republican politics uh, real kind of thing, <laughs> in contemporary terms almost forever he was the youngest person named in the Watergate inquiry he's a Machiavellian schemer on behalf of the Republican Party for about 40 years he's like almost like the monolithic totem in the movie 2001 every time the Republican Party does something dubious to win an election from the Watergate break into the Brooks Brothers riot the, what do you laugh what do you people laugh I'm just at?
1: picturing apes circling around Roger Stone <laughs> mystically <laughs>
2: touching his hairdo (sighs) I love it Uh, to the Brooks Brothers riot that uh, helped seat Bush over Al Gore um, to the election of the Oval Office's current occupant, Stone has been there, dirty, trickstering, innuendo mongering, just generally slamming anybody. Um, why don't we uh, listen to a clip from the documentary?
3: When I was assigned New York for Ronald Reagan in 1979, for the 1980 election, mm-hmm. shortly thereafter I was invited to a dinner party, uh, being thrown by a Washington socialite, uh, who in all honesty I was trying to lay, and Cohn was present. So I made my way up to him, I introduced myself, I said uh, Mr. Cohn, I'm I'm Roger Stone. He looked at me and he said, are you the son or the grandson of the Roger Stone who's running the Reagan campaign here in New York? I said, no, that's me. He turns to his partner, Tom Bolan. and he says, Reagan's in trouble. I wrote a lot about Roy Cohn. I started hearing about Roger from people who were close to Roy. Roy Cohn is the single most evil person I have ever covered. If that's a magnet for you as a young man, it says you're soulless before you start. Well, my attitude regarding those who criticize me for being friends with Roy Cohn or Richard Nixon is, Fuck em.
1: I would just mention coming out of that clip that the other voice you hear besides Roger Stone's voice in the middle there talking about his friendship with, with Roy Cohn, the much loathed lawyer of the Joe McCarthy days. Um, is Wayne Barrett, who was a journalist who spent essentially his whole career covering this world, covering Donald Trump and Roger Stone and the kind of, you know, to use the term that I don't think comes up in this movie, but that was often used for Lee Otwater and Roger Stone and these people, sort of the rat fucker culture of, of low-level mm-hmm. Republican fixers. And I think, to me, the biggest strength of this documentary is that there's so much Wayne Barrett in it. Wayne Barrett just died last year. He unfortunately lived just long enough to see Donald Trump elected president. and uh, And he has just such smart things to say about that world as seen from the inside of an investigative reporter who's, who knows it well.
2: Yeah, here, here. I mean, that is absolutely one of the strengths of it, Dana. Let me, let me, um, let me stick with you for a second. Um, when we discussed uh, doing this documentary, I don't think any of us would have agreed to it had we known the extent to which it forces you to relive the nightmare that was 2016, the 2016 election. Um, it certainly does that, and um, I don't think it's an exorcism. I think you. Uh, f- feel every bit as filled with demonic poison as when you started watching, maybe even more so. Nonetheless, um, is there something to be extracted from this documentary? What did you learn that you didn't know before?
1: I mean, I guess I, I knew the basic outlines of the part that he had played in Trump's campaign. I certainly learned something about the previous 40 to 50 years of Republican politics and his machinations, the machinations of other operatives of, of his sort. But I can't say that I thought this documentary was that successful in the uh, the information that it was trying to bring. I mean, a part of it is maybe the, the too soon kind of concept. I don't know that I need to revisit November 8th, 2016 right now and just sort of wring my hands again about watching the returns come in. That part was a little bit pointlessly brutal. And I kind of thought that this movie sucked up to Roger Stone a little bit too much. I mean, it gives him a lot of airtime. It gives him a lot of chance to kind of preeningly sit in a fancy suit next to a three olive martini in a luxurious apartment and talk about what a wonderfully nefarious kind of fixer dude he is. And yes, it also has some investigative background and kind of counter narrative to what he says. But I felt that this documentary let him be too cute. You can even hear that in the music mm. underneath the clip mm-hmm. that we just played, that there's a mm-hmm. little bit of a cutesy trickster vibe to letting him say his piece. And uh, for one thing, not challenging him much in interviews, not that challenging Roger Stone really does any good because he's sort of determined to skate on the surface of everything. But I don't know. It it, it felt to me a little bit stunty and gimmicky, this movie. And I didn't feel that the amount I learned about Roger Stone from it A, gave me a whole lot of clarity about what happened in this insane last two years than I already had before, and B, was really quite worth the amount of cutesy smarm that we had to endure from Roger Stone and in some ways from the framers of the story about him.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, I came away from this with my typical itchiness that I've expressed on this program before with documentaries as a conduit for information that could also be conveyed journalistically, like... And this one set off all of my alarm buzzers of should we, how much should we trust this information? Uh, Roger Stone loves telling his own story. And he has, I think, bent these filmmakers to his purpose to get them to tell his story the way he wants it to be told as this swashbuckling mastermind who's got a finger in every pie. There's one moment in the film where Tucker Carlson, who appears as a talking head, evinces some skepticism about. Uh, the difference between whether Roger Stone actually was engineering all of these crucial moments in the history of uh, Republican politics in the last 50 years, or whether he just likes to tell the story of him having been at the center of these things, because he's clearly a self-aggrandizing, narcissistic, just kind of enjoys being a a larger-than-life character. And to me, that is the question. That is a really interesting question about how his self-conception and persona, married to what he actually achieved, married to uh, the this style of Republican politics as it shifted away from the Republican Party of Eisenhower and this movie doesn't interrogate any of that. I mean, it's you know, and I get the temptation. Like, it's like Roger Stone as as a documentary subject. It's like getting you know a big glittering, sparkling, multi-carat diamond. And there's a version of making the documentary where you just point the light at the diamond and it and all the mm-hmm. sparkles sparkle everywhere. Yeah. But they didn't. Ah, sure. oh, this metaphor falling apart. Set it in any kind of interesting <laughs> setting. I don't know. Like, the, it, it it it's it's. There's no. Uh, there's no meat here. So I still learned a lot. It was interesting to see some of the historical footage. I had read a lot about Roger Stone, but not seen a lot of him. You know, I I I know more than I did two hours ago, but I don't know as much as I wish I did.
1: And it's really sort of hard to trust the truth value of what Roger Stone is saying by its very nature. So when he talks, for example, about his distancing from the Trump campaign at the, at the end of the uh, election cycle, He still seems to want to believe that he was there in some important way, but you also see him on election night basically toasting uh, with Alex Jones during the taping of Infowars, which gives you the sense that he was sort of sent off to the fringes somewhere. There was a lot to question in his smug presentation of his importance to the campaign.
2: No, no, no. Absolutely. Look, well, on the on the specific point, you know, Manafort ended up the um, Paul Manafort ended up the um, campaign chief. For Trump, uh, Manafort is the has been the uh, lobbying partner of Stone for um, I don't know what thirty years plus. Uh, it seems t- entirely plausible that he got the job because of Stone. I mean, Stone in some material way was always present. Um, in the in the uh and influential within the trump campaign but that that aside i mean it should be said this 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 documentary was made with the full cooperation of stone uh he addresses the camera directly he understands that the that the documentary is being made by as he repeatedly points out you know liberal intellectual types loathsome liberal intellectual types um i I, you know i think it's a painful document and an obnoxious document but i think it's a a critical one for two reasons. I think first, it demonstrates the extent to which over the last 40 or so years, nihilism went from being a purely instrumental thing under Nixon, right? Like you hire a cheerful nihilist to do your dirty bidding for you because that's the only way you can win the popularity contest that is politics, um, especially if you're fronting for essentially unpopular policies. But none- <clears throat> nonetheless, you elect a relatively substantial uh, uh, and uh, prepared to govern figure in Nixon, who has all kinds of ethical problems, but was not himself an empty human being, regardless of what you think of the substance of Richard Nixon's. He, regardless of what you think of Richard Nixon, he was not an insubstantial human being. Um, and over the 40 years, it goes from being purely strategic and instrumental. This. Weird, cheerful, rat-funking nihilism to the actual substance of the Republican Party. It seems to me that is the arc that's being traced here. Trump represents nihilism as the face of the party, as the you know the principle. As has been pointed out repeatedly, Trump has no policy platform to speak of. He had no coherent story to tell the American people. He was simply a nihilistic bomb thrown into the system that Americans now, to the tune of fifty percent of roughly of the electorate, you know, they want thrown at the establishment. They want the establishment blown up. The second is more of a question, but it's an interesting question. And the extent to which you can at least approach an answer uh, in watching this documentary, I thought was quite productive. And that's to what extent, okay, we know that politics is by definition an insider's game. The question is to what extent to its insiders is it just a game? And And what's the relationship of that pure gamesmanship to the exigencies of the modern media, especially cable TV and now social media? And I think this comes up in the documentary repeatedly with Stone, who sort of pretends to be someone... Uh, who's only playing a, a game, right? And that that he's created a persona that he at one point likens to Stephen Colbert's persona, i.e. it's completely artificial and you fools make the mistake of thinking there's any degree of authenticity or sincerity to it. But even more so in the interviews with Tucker Carlson. Now, Tucker Carlson has become, in order to make a fantastical paycheck, has become more and more of a cartoon figure uh, as the years go on. But I know people who started in DC journalism right around when he did. He he is an intelligent, sober, a potentially sober journalist who decided to go for the money. And the way to go for the money was to was to create a kind of slightly Neanderthalic, pseudo-intellectual dweeb um, who says preposterous things on a nightly basis. And in this documentary, he the old Tucker Carlson, or the one that I had always heard of in couldn't believe existed is entirely on display. Be some of the his interviews are as penetrating and sober as the ones that Jeffrey Tubin gives for the documentary, and it and and it raises the issue in the context of telling Roger Stone's story. It raises the very interesting question to what extent. When a camera goes on, television camera goes on, do people just invent a persona that they know pushes buttons because that drives ratings and that gets them gigs and that makes them rich? And nobody really believes anything. And so to me, this was to the extent that American politics has descended via nihilism into a kind of chaos um, I thought this was an important document. I thought It's painful to watch. And it, 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 I don't know that it sucks up to Stone, but it gives them an enormous amount of airtime. But by the end of it, you have some sense of what the character not only of modern conservatism is, which is lost, I mean, satanically lost, um, but what the uh, general state of American politics is. I thought that was invaluable.
0: Steve, I can't wait to watch your documentary about Roger Stone. (laughs) Everything you just said is so much smarter than what's in this documentary. Yeah, I was
1: just going to say, if this movie had exceeded to that level of analysis, I would be much more enthusiastic about it right now. Right. Just as one example, like that
0: level of analysis is so interesting, Steve, and that read on Tucker Carlson is fascinating. This is a documentary where they describe the moment where when Roger Stone joins forces with Paul Manafort, who we should note, although he did run Trump's campaign for a moment also resigned in August, so didn't carry it through all the way to the end. But anyway, they start this firm and they cross this line of propriety that if you get someone elected, you don't then immediately turn around and try to monetize that relationship you have with the person that you just got elected. They make that the new order of the day for lobbying. They start the lobbying firm and then Montage, and there's just like the most information-free, hackneyed montage (laughs) where they play that '80s song about the money for nothing and the chicks for free, and they're posing in suits, and then the camera like pans across the Pentagon, and And they're they're
1: they're counting money and close up stacks of bills are like
0: being plopped (laughs) on the table, and you're just like,
1: ah, there's nothing in here. This is so,
0: this is just as empty as the thing they're professing to critique. Uh, so don't watch this movie. Just go back and read Jacob Weisberg's old Roger Stone profile and hope Steve will come out with a piece about Roger Stone sometime soon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. All right. The movie is Get Me Roger Stone. It is streaming on Netflix. Check it out or not. Um, obey me or obey Julia Turner, um, but ignore your own conscience in a Roger Stone style. But anyway, come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought of it. All right. Moving on.
3: This episode is supported by FX's Clipped,
2: The iPhone turned 10 last week. Uh, When it was unveiled, Steve Jobs said of it, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device, a rare instance maybe in which Steve Jobs actually undersold one of his uh, um, devices uh, and one of his own achievements. It's become the most profitable, uh, it has been argued the most profitable and one of the most revolutionary devices ever made. Any argument about capitalism as a visionary and salvific forced almost always begins and ends with Steve Jobs. And his legacy now, as much as anything, is bound up with this thing, this one device, pocket computing, pocket everything, the world at your fingertips. You can pick any angle in, Julia, for this topic. You can go economic, spiritual, uh, technological, whatever it would fit. Uh, Where do you want to start?
0: Yeah, this is one of those um, like fish in the fishbowl or frog in the boiling pot segments. Where we're, and maybe that is the big question, which is it? Um, Like where we're asked to examine a cultural change that is so massive, it's hard to even see. And it was interesting to go back and look at some of the um, discussion of the iPhone when it was first launched and just remember what life was like when you could not uh, Google the family tree of dinosaurs at a moment's notice to answer your (laughs) son's question or um or snap a picture of a phone number that you intend to call later just to remind yourself of what the phone number is rather than like writing it down somewhere or I don't know I mean I even had a moment last night where I was reading on my phone in bed with my phone held horizontally an article that Daniel hopefully selected that had images of all of the iPhone versions there have been since it was first launched, and they all were, look remarkably similar. Like, it's interesting the degree to which the thing they initially made is so much still what we're all using 10 years on. Um and I had the thought as I looked at my horizontal screen frame, framing an image of the vertical screen, like, what a perfect image to encapsulate how vital the iPhone is to the way that we live our lives. I should take a picture of this <laughs> instant. What a tweetable, shareable <laughs> image that that would encapsulate the story better than talking about it. And then I was like, I can't take a picture of this image with my eyes because I'm holding the iPhone. I would <laughs> use to take a picture of the iPhone. But even this instinct of like, ooh, it's a little grabbable, shareable moment is a product of the iPhone. So... I don't know. And I'm not sure if I'm boiling or just trapped in a in a case of glass <laughs> yeah. of indeterminate size, but um it's changed everything, including the uh, like the fact that this podcast wouldn't exist or be, you know, as popular or economically sustainable without the rise of the iPhone probably. Like with, what would the podcast ecosystem have been if uh it had, if the iPod had only ever remained the iPod? What would Slate's economic model be without the rise of the iPhone and the vast audiences we've been able to reach? Like Everything. Everything. I got I got no boundaries on this conversation. Dana, help me.
1: You know, what I was trying to think of going through all of these, these great articles that Daniel collected for us about the history of the iPhone and that kind of shows it's, its different changes and iterations over the last 10 years, I was just trying to locate my own history with it and decide when I had first gotten one and had that moment of, you know, suddenly going from your phone being a thing that you make calls on and occasionally snap a blurry photo on to this kind of extension of your body, which is what I think a lot of people's smartphones mm-hmm. have become. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just what an ambivalent relationship that is, you know, like there was so much pleasure when I first got it at the discovery of apps and podcasts and good photography and all the things that it suddenly opened up. But now I feel like Definitely, almost daily, I have a a feeling of intense hatred about this stupid, expensive rectangle that I have to locate (laughs) and charge and pay for (laughs) and consult and, you know, that it's sort of – I don't even get push notifications and I try to make it not be a thing that interrupts my life as much as possible. And you guys know that I do the Tech Sabbath thing on Saturdays when I can. But nonetheless – Essentially, that little horrible rectangle sort of rules our lives now. And uh, I don't mean to be completely mm. technophobic and say that that's only a bad thing, but I think I think a lot of people would agree that own this device, that it has addictive properties and qualities that don't feel yeah. entirely wholesome yeah. and that it feels like there are companies, big, powerful, tech-savvy companies that are figuring out ways to make that addiction even stronger.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, um, I... I... Well, let me begin by saying I'm strangely unambivalent about it. Um, I love it, and I use it um, constantly, and I use it principally for music. When I went to Tasmania, I photog- I was able to photograph everything without being a person who w- would have otherwise had a camera with them. Uh, I could take, you know, astonishingly crisp um a video with it uh I obviously i use it as a phone to text and unfortunately the one kind of ambivalent regret i do feel is to be on twitter way 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 too much i don't i don't have like what there's a no small part of my personality is a luddite um you know a heideggerian you know uh, d- embedded dark deep in the hut in a forest uh, you know um a monk but 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 somehow this device doesn't provoke that side of my personality and i think the reason is is a couple one is that I I expect it's a uh, pessimism about human beings as spiritually spiritually lazy no matter what um, you know device they're given to allow them to be that right Like so you know in the old days a father would come down to breakfast and pop open the um, the newspaper and use it as a screen between him and his family. I mean, people have been avoiding intimacy, they've been avoiding their own conscience, they've been avoiding you know, um, social change. Um, and they will find a way to do it with or without the iPhone. Um, and so for, for me, assuming that that's a constant, and then in fact, all of life is overcoming a kind of, you know, laziness in a way. I mean, like, like the, you know, the need to be attentive to yourself as an authentic human being and others as an authentic human being, it takes, it takes a kind of work to be attentive in a meaningful way. And, and, and and in a way, it focuses the conversation on that attentiveness because people are so aware of this one thing making them inattentive that they become conscious of it in a new way, in a, in a weird way, and, and then make, make more of an effort to put the device away. And having put the device away, then they feel more acutely. I mean, I, I, I say this, it sounds pretentious. I, let me put it more simply. If I go out to dinner with my wife and my two daughters or my wife and one of my daughters or whomever, there is an impulse to get on the fucking phones right we we all know each other inside and out we all recite the same lines of dialogue but we also love one another's company and if we if we all make the conscious it's easy to get on the phones because we still love each other either way right like it's not you know, we're not trying to prove anything to one another by making animated conversation with one another. So at that moment, the desire to be with one another becomes quite conscious because we keep the goddamn thing in our pocket because it is addictive. It's so easy. Um, I don't know. Am I, am I going anywhere with this? I just I sense that its utility is immense. I appreciate its utility, and the burden of spiritual intactness is constant and difficult and doesn't change at all because of it
1: whoa
0: (laughs) that's not what
1: i thought steve would say no i i i think i agree with you i i I know and i think you're discounting i think you're discounting the difference between the power that digital media has and non-digital media and just the enormous corporate forces that are Mm. impinging upon that device to make it something that we can't put down. I mean, I just think that that is different from a guy holding a newspaper up because he doesn't want to talk to his kids. They may be the same in kind, but they're very different in degree.
0: Yeah, I would argue in some ways the web is better. Like there's so many more things you can find. It's more interactive. You can carry your own experience for better or for worse. But uh, I, I don't know. Like there's there. I feel like having an iPhone in hand a lot for uh, fosters like inquisitiveness and research and learning in my family. Like we I always like, let's find out, let's look it up. Like a family project of let's find out is that's like very much the spirit of our hanging out. Like we have a conversation and my kids are at the age of why, 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 why this and that. And so we look it up and we figure out the answer or, mm-hmm. you know, you can kind of explore music in that way. Oh, we love this song about Rhode Island. What's this? What's another song that's like that? Or what's a we have a version of Blossom Deary singing it like let's find a version of Mandy Patinkin singing it like the the. It's a tool for exploration in a way that uh, certainly, I mean, a replacement for the newspaper as the daughter of newspaper, a newspaper man and woman, I'm not sure I can argue, but like is a replacement for TV, which is what it mm-hmm. often is, like mm-hmm. so yeah. much better. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, then there's the people who watch TV and and look at the iPhone at the same time. And that's that that's it does, is not a group that always excludes me. <laughs> and uh, like that you can sort of feel like you're living in a in a down yeah. slope towards idiocracy when <laughs> when you start doing that you're like well i must be both reading things on my phone and having tv i, I must only listen to the prestige dramas that they're now making while i watch other things on my then yeah. you're like okay no we're all we're all idiots and so this is going a bad bad place <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> right. Look, I don't want to put too much emphasis on the father with the newspaper as a you know screen between him and his family. Whatever it was, all I mean is that people will find a way to avoid themselves and others. And if it's the iPhone, it's the iPhone. If if if, however, Dana, you really love being with uh, others and specifically your family, the iPhone is a terrific, as Julia says, instrument for that togetherness. And the number of times I have to drive my kids fucking everywhere up here right like i'm in the car with them for hours and there are any number of ways that experience can go including into like profound silence um but but i would say the iphone as much as anything is an instrument for for us to, to for me to play a song that i just heard for my daughter to do the same back to me for uh from like just ask a kind of with per, with kind of parental cunning to ask a question that forces them to look something up, but then to tell me about it and summarize it because I'm driving and on and on and on and on. Intrinsically, I I have a hard time. And Dana, you know me. I'm as likely to ascribe, you know, uh, malevolent uh, ubiquity to corporate America and um, uh, you know, uh. But in this instance, I kind of think uh, the hagiography sounding jobs and the kind of um. Caveman, look at fire, awe that people feel for this is signal, you know, single greatest creation. I kind of think is somewhat warranted.
0: I also think we're just, I think it's going to endure. Like, I think in 50 years looking back or in 200 years looking back, it will also seem like a pivot moment because I think what it's going to be is a bridge to a world that we can all feel ambivalent about. And this is back to the boiling or just contained question. Um, of, of integration of computing into aspects of our lives. And I think that's the next step there is Alexa and the other in-home voice tools. And as you note, Dana, there's uh, plenty to be concerned about in the notion of opting into uh, corporate surveillance in our own kitchens. But the sense that we are rapidly accelerating towards a future like star trek next generation where you say like computer make me a latte and it says latte and then it just like materializes (laughs) next to you is like this the iphone seems like the pivot point toward that towards just the the personalized responsive computing with you always
1: right and i just think that there is a there's a intractable ambivalence in that i'm not trying to be a luddite about it and shake my fist at the iphone i mean it is just a thing that has happened that has changed the way we relate to information and technology Mm. and media and everything and in many ways that's that's a wonderful thing but there's no way that it doesn't also bring a huge amount of changes that we still can't fathom right i mean there hasn't Mm. yet been a, a generation that grew up with this right it's only 10 years old
2: Mm. Siri, get me a platitude with which to end this segment. (laughs) Um, All right, anyway, the iPhone is 10 years old. Uh, We're on our way to lattes for everyone. Um, uh, This Uh, one has got to (laughs) generate. Yes, exactly, latte dystopia. This has got to generate some serious chatter on the Facebook page, so come there. Tell us what you think of the iPhone, uh, how you use it, and uh, what you think of it.
0: Or wait, actually, tell us the biggest way you think the iPhone is changing all of our lives, and maybe we'll um, read some off in a future plus segment and uh, and and assess the, the changes we didn't even get to discussing here.
2: All right, moving on. All ah, right. Well now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dan no 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 what do you have?
1: Steven, this week I'm going to do something I rarely do and endorse a local place. It's something I try to avoid doing because I know oh. our <laughs> listeners are all around the world and I don't want to force them to go to one single place like some what, podcasters. What, what kind of a fucko would do
2: that? Oh my god, damn.
1: <laughs> so instead of telling them about the single best piece of pizza in Vermont that's located in a tiny <laughs> locked shed on a dirt road. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell them about a place that they might actually be able to visit. So if you come to New York, or if, like me, you're a New Yorker who's lived here for, oh my God, going on 20 years and have not in a a long time or ever been to the Cloisters, I'm endorsing the Cloisters Museum, which I I am one such New Yorker Uh, who's lived here for 17 years and has never been to the Cloisters. I almost want to be the one to take you. It's so magical. So I hadn't been since... I don't know, college, shortly after college, at least 25 years since I had been to this museum. Now, let's remember that I was a medieval studies major in college. So this is like my favorite period of art, of music, of everything. I'm a total medieval nut. I just love the whole aesthetics of that period. And the Cloisters, if you don't know about it, is an extension of the Metropolitan Museum, I believe. Their work belongs to the Metropolitan. But it was built way uptown in Fort Tryon Park, which is at 190th Street at the very top of Manhattan. Uh, in the 30s, in this great kind of pastiche style of 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 sort of faux medieval building. So they got a bunch of, you know, parts, essentially, of churches that had either been damaged in war or were being taken apart for some reason or other, and uh, some of which are, you know, the actual cloister structures themselves. There's a bunch of those little sort of gardens surrounded by, um, by pillars. Almost all the doors in the museum are works of art. They're doors that came from some sort of, you know, cathedral or a church in Spain or an old you know door with metalwork from the 14th century or something so as you're walking from room to room you're witnessing these great pieces of art it's a pretty small museum but it's laid out in this really great sort of nook and cranny way where you keep discovering new little rooms full of treasures and they've just got a great 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 collection like tapestries and glasswork and you know all kinds of like wood sculptures and paintings and just any medium of medieval art including gardens they've got a garden that's all sort of things that would be growing in a in a medieval garden um, anyway, and there's a wonderful little cafe. I recommend bringing a picnic and you can just sit there as long as you want and drink your iced coffee and look at incredible art all around you. So I had a very dreamy birthday there and I'm endorsing the Cloisters.
2: All right. Oh, man. I will finally I'm go. i born and raised in New York and uh, never been. Julia, what do you have?
0: I have the most opposite to Dana's <laughs> endorsement, <laughs> the most practical, the most modern. Uh, this is sort of a follow-on to our iPhone segment. Uh one of the ways in which the iPhone has become a nuisance rather than a pleasure lately is uh, the rise of mobile telemarketing. If you are like me, you have gotten so many spam phone calls on your phone. They happen all the time. At one point they were happening like twice a day. I was forever like winning cruises in Puget Sound or that dipshit woman would come on with like the pause and be like, and pretend to have Dropped the line like, oh, I'm so sorry. Hello, I'm Nancy. I'm telling you a blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, fuck you, lady. You'd call me yesterday, Nancy. You'd botch all of your calls. Anyway, so uh, there is an app for that, an app called RoboKiller. There's also another one called Nomo Robo, which both of the names are good. I think uh, Gabe Roth is the one who turned me on to Nomo Robo. And somehow through internet research, I arrived at RoboKiller. But RoboKiller is an app. It's a paid app. Uh, I think you pay a couple bucks for it. I forget whether it's monthly or annual. That's how they get you. But whether it is monthly or annual, it is worth it, even if it costs as much as $25 a year because... I don't get them anymore. I haven't heard from Nancy in months. And not only that, it does a really good job of sifting calls. Like today I got a call from a 1-800 number associated with a bank because there was some weird activity. Like it let through the correct random impersonal weirdo that was trying to reach me and eliminates all of the Puget Sound cruises and the tax fraud and the, hi, I'm from Apple or is it Microsoft? Could you give me access to your computer, please? Like all of those calls. Robo-killer, get it, it's good.
2: Are, but we're confident that it knows the difference? I mean, if it eliminated a legit call, how would you know?
0: Uh, good question, but who cares? <laughs> I, don't want, I don't even want most of the legitimate calls I get.
2: <laughs>
0: the more get you out. can weed out the I better. pay extra for that service.
2: <laughs> you know what, if the bath water is noisome enough, an occasional baby down the drain...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I don't know but I have not heard from either human or corporation that really needed to reach me that was unable to
2: there you go all right I love this I may actually um, hunt this down all right Um. so my endorsement today is kind of a either a supplement to or a substitute for the Roger Stone documentary, many of you may, may be tempted not to watch it or having watched it feel like you got kind of something of an empty meal. If you want to piece together the story of the Republican Party over the last, I mean, even approaching a 100 years, though really more the last 50, I have three things I recommend to you. And I recommend each of them extremely, like with extreme competence that these are definitive documents. The first is the Gary Wills book, which I've uh, endorsed previously on this podcast, Nixon Agonistes, which I regard as the single best book I've ever read on American politics or possibly politics of any kind. Uh, Wills was a young reporter following Nixon around, wrote a huge, eventually huge reported, but also ton of deeply thoughtful and theoretical book about the phenomenon of Nixon. And, you know, we forget that in 1968, Richard Nixon being elected president was as shocking to a portion of the American public as the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Nixon had been a villain uh, uh, to the American left for uh, 20, 25 years. Um, and uh, that, that he was now a president of the United States was really dispiriting. And Wills really gets into what had happened in American life that made Nixon an acceptable figure for the presidency. It is a brilliant Brilliant, brilliant book. Um, and then the second would be, you know, Reagan came along. It's remarkable how quickly Reagan came along and and kind of erased um, Watergate in a way. I mean, one would have thought that after the, a constitutional crisis of that degree, um, that the Republican Party would have been on the mat for election cycle, maybe a dozen election cycles, and it was scarcely won. I mean, what happened was Reagan came along and changed the direction of the party. How he changed it is, in a way, the subject of a Joan Diddy essay called The West Wing of Oz, something I've also um, endorsed on this uh, show, but it gives a sense of how Reagan's vacuity allowed for a kind of void at the heart of the Reagan White House and how that leadership style of a Republican who, in some respects, is really a front person um, uh, while his advisors are left to fight it out amongst themselves uh, in order to direct the federal government and thereby the country. And then, finally, a documentary called Boogeyman about Lee Atwater, who in his own way gave birth to Roger Stone and therefore Donald Trump's America, um, who was uh, claim to fame really at the time, was that he had led the campaign for George Bush Sr. against Michael Dukakis and, and, and took Bush from a 17-point deficit to a win, what many people at the time thought was an improbable, if not impossible win, in part by demonizing Willie Horton, a black prisoner in the Massachusetts system who was on a furlough, who raped a white woman. And the fascinating thing about Atwater is the question of whether or not he himself was a diehard racist. He was a southerner, but he was also a blues musician. He played with B.B. King. Um, uh, and that documentary really, really gets into the kind of demonic and very conflicted soul of Lee Water in a way, um, it's far more interesting and deep than, than the stone documentary. But between these three, you really get a sense of the, of what the foundations of the contemporary Republican party are. And each one is a remarkable document in its own right. So anyway, we'll post them on the uh, webpage.
1: That is a good, that's a good reading list. I'm excited to tuck in there. Well, that documentary, Boogeyman, I believe I reviewed that Lee Atwater documentary when it came out. And it was something that I thought about a lot when watching this unsatisfying Get Me Roger Stone. Because that Lee Atwater doc, I'm not going to remember what the specific scenes are, but it did that documentary thing where your mouth is agape that they were able to get access and get such scenes as they were and such self-incriminating things. And the Get Me Roger Stone documentary just has so much more of a slick controlled feel than that it, it really makes you feel like he's the one pulling the strings whereas the leatwater doc seemed like you know they were really getting some dirt
2: um all right well julia thank you so much thanks steve Dana, thanks a lot thanks steven you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page slate.com slash culture fest you can email us at culture fest at slate.com or drop us a note at our facebook page facebook.com slash culture fest our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.
3: That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and your chicks for free. Money for nothing.